to another podcast from Fudzon Film. I am Craig Eastman and with me as always Scott Morris. Hello. Drew Tavendale can't be with us tonight so in his absence we shall be talking a little bit around the work and career of one of our favourite actor directors from the world cinema stage that being Takeshi Kitano. So without further ado let's crack on. So Scott, I'm guessing very much like myself then, I think you stumbled across Takeshi Kitano in some form um, while we were in our formative high school years, right? I'm guessing around the mid-90s? Yes, I think more than anyone else, he's had the the biggest impact on my film-watching career, if you like. The works that he's put out were probably the most influential and the first things that made me see that cinema could be more than just, you know, flashing lights on a screen. And he certainly opened up a lot of doors into the world of Japanese and just foreign language cinema in general that I had not seen before at the time. Um, So he's clearly one of the the most influential people in my thinking of film. So it's great to have a chance to chat about him. Yeah, I guess for me, we were discussing this briefly just before we recorded, but I guess to fill in the listener, I first came across Takeshi Kitano when I believe I'd bought a VHS from the UK manga label. I can't remember what film it was. It wasn't Akira. It must have been something else. Um, And inside it was this flyer for the ICA presentation of Violet Cop and this stark black and white imagery. It really captured my imagination and I don't think I understood um, or had really any concept of what Asian cinema was at that point. And as you've mentioned, I think my first foray into Takeshi's work, which was Violent Cop, which I later got hold of on VHS, turned out to be massively important and yeah. very much tipped the scales at a point when I, I didn't necessarily realise I had critical faculties um, or probably I hadn't developed them at that point. And this actor-director's work is very much responsible for me developing a taste for, for cinema that I might otherwise never have developed. Yes, same here. He's been tremendously important in opening up a number of doors, which otherwise I think may never have been opened. Mm. Uh, I think we'll get on to Violent Cop in a little bit, I think, and we'll talk perhaps a bit more about how we came across him there, but probably best to back up and tell people exactly who Takeshi Kitano is if you're not... Uh, exactly, because even even at this point, I think he's, he's certainly by no means a mainstream um, yeah. participant in Western cinema, <laughs> having having had one or two notably <laughs> um, disappointing forays into that, that league. Uh, yeah, let's talk a little <laughs> bit about, about who this guy actually is and where he's come from. Born back in 1947, but he became famous around about the 70s as a part of a comic duo. His, his alter ego uh, beat Takeshi with uh, his partner. They were called Two Beat, and they were tremendously popular all the way throughout the 70s and 80s, which eventually led to him taking up a number of TV gigs, partly comedy, and then later on turning into something more dramatic as well. He, he's still working in television today. The man has perhaps one thing to bring home. He's had perhaps the most outstanding work ethic of nearly any director I've seen, uh, perhaps with the exception of uh, Takeshi Miki, who turns out films at a tremendous rate, but he's never been inactive. He's always either doing television or film work. Also, a lot of his earlier comic stuff, from what I gather, was uh, something that is, well, certainly not what we call politically correct, and a lot of the punchlines do not seem to be things that you'd actually want to be caught laughing at these days. No, uh, so it, perhaps it, I'm glad I've not seen it. No, <laughs> I was going to say, having never seen any of his work, the impression I get is very much the sort of, if, if, if one must distill it so um, yes. so um, perfectly, then probably probably something like the Japanese Benny Hill would, would yes. sum up. <laughs> yes. This probably seemed funny at the time, but less yeah. less so now. Yeah, so I'm, perhaps I'm glad I've not seen that. Now, one thing I think a lot of Western audiences, certainly for some reason in Britain, may have seen is his uh, 1980s game show, Takeshi's Castle, which is a ridiculous, it's a knockout style uh, 
well, it's a knockout taken to a rather cruel extreme, perhaps, uh, mm. game show where lots of Japanese people are put through tremendous physical trials to uh, win some sort of nebulously defined prize at the end of it with Takeshi Kitano occasionally showing up, uh, although he's quite often frequently not in it at all. And of course, in the UK, it was narrated by Red Dwarf's Craig Charles and became a, a quite a mainstay of uh, late night television. It's not something I think really we need to spend any time talking about here, but that's one of the two early reasons where people may have came across Kitano's work. I, don't, I take it with nothing particular to say about, uh, about it. No. It's, it's not something that, that warrants an awful lot of uh, commentary. It's, no. it's a silly game show. I, w- I wish I had something more to say, but it's, it's one of those things that, again, your university years and my early my early work years, it was that sort of thing. Yeah. I've I, I can lay in late today and I've I've got all these new TV channels which have started cropping up. What's yes. this thing? Oh, it's a load of people throwing, I don't know, medicine balls at each other's heads. <laughs> yes, and Craig Charles sort of, cackling over it. <laughs> yes, it's some sort of some sort of loose game show format that seems largely based around people getting hurt. Yes. Um, <laughs> isn't, isn't that amusing? Uh, and yes, very, very much a product of its time. Nothing much to comment on that. Oh, it was a good deal of fun. It was yes. a good deal of fun. Rather more worthy, of course, is the 1984 film Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, directed by Nagasi Oshima. Probably, I think, most famous for uh, Ryuichi Sakamoto's haunting score, which is mm. you know, tremendous uh, work and still favorite, one of my favourite bits of film scoring to this day. Absolutely. And, and, and sadly, but one of the few things I can remember of that film, I, I know I have seen it, but I'd be hard-pressed mm. to tell you anything about it. Yes. I certainly don't remember um, Takeshi's involvement. Yes, it's, it's very much one of these cases where it is a great film that has Takeshi Kitano in it rather than being a great Takeshi Kitano film. He's mm. uh, basically playing the camp sergeant, uh, the sort of second banana to Richie Sakamoto's uh, captain, who's kind of in overall control of a Japanese prisoner of war camp, mm. and the balance of which is kind of upset when a... Of course, Richie Sakamoto's a bit of a bishon himself, but he, he rather gets his eye turned when uh, Corporal David Bowie shows up <laughs> <laughs> as part of a prisoner of war, and it's, it's, it's something of a a kind of doomed romance between those two and uh, it's with some sort of interpretation trying to be carried out by I forget his rank but uh, Mr Lawrence which is of course Tom mm. Conte who plays the unofficial camp translator and interpreter of the Japanese uh, society at the time it's a, it's a really interesting war film it's one of the earliest I think examples where you could get the implication that the people that actually worked in prisoner of war camps even on the the wrong side in this case the the Japanese side may not actually all be complete inhuman monsters and some of them may yeah. actually be by the standards of their culture have some sort of rationale for what they're doing even if it seems you know barbaric compared to what we'd be we would expect I, them I guess in some way tellingly this this film um, as early in his career as it came uh, and despite a couple of uh, roles in in western productions later on is still the film that people uh, here in the West are probably most likely, unless, of course, you, you're a fan of Takeshi, is probably the film that most people are going to recognise him from, if at all. Yes, certainly that's why we feel it's worth mm-hmm. mentioning those uh, films, this and that television series, but it's such a narrow window onto what, what he, Takeshi Takano has to offer that if you've if that has been your limit of him so far, then we're hoping that we can perhaps open you up to something that's a bit more special uh, going forward. The first film that he both directed and Played that bit parts, and I think this might be his first major role, certainly in anything dramatic rather than uh, comedic. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, of course, the aforementioned violent cop. Perhaps worth doing a little bit of scene setting here. I think I, I believe I still saw this when, first when I was in towards the end of my high school career, and in those days, 
we had in Britain access to four television channels, maybe five. I forget if Channel Five had launched by that point, but films only were just. Not, I think films were not thick on the ground unless you had satellite, which or cable, which I didn't. Mm. So trying to find any film that was a little bit out of the ordinary it was it's kind of kind of difficult. You were left limited to when something like BBC Two showed mm. some of their movie drone stuff that was fronted by Alex Cox, or um, I think it then became Mark Cousins. I seem to remember Mark Kermode doing some of them, but I may be misremembering that. I only remember the Alex Cox years because that introduced me to Assault on Precinct 13. Mm-hmm. So it was a lot of, a lot of interesting films like that, and the, like the Cronenberg uh, stuff, which was, of course, uh, like Scanners, I think, was the first time I saw that was part of a movie drone yeah. thing. Yeah. So it was also the time when I first started seeing some anime, which uh, some of the time was uh, very influential for me. Things like Akira was shown on Channel 4. Channel 4 sort of were the only sort of media outlet in the UK to get anything like an early handle on that stuff, right? We, yeah. were, we were picking up stuff like, say, like Akira and some of the episodic stuff like Cyber City yeah. um, uh, showing late night on Channel 4, but like really late night. Yeah, Legend of the Four Kings, Wicked oh. City, all that stuff. It was almost impossible. I mean, certainly for me at the time, uh, we had in Falkirk, our, our hometown, we had one cinema that had three screens and was not <laughs> going to be showing anything like this sort of art house stuff. But even <laughs> you, can, you can get in multiplexes these days, actually. Folks like uh, Sydney World having a bit more of a broader mm. outlook, but you, you couldn't get that. I didn't have the, even if I they did show it. I didn't have the money to go and see that or rent any of the films like that. So mm. uh, it was limited to what was showing on TV. And it, lo and behold, at some point, Channel 4 did a Japanese film little series, which included some stuff that has haunted me to the day, things like Shinji Tsukamoto's uh, Tetsuo and Tetsuo 2, and then mm-hmm. Violent Cop, which blew my mind as mm-hmm. a kid. Absolutely astonishing film. It took me a long time to parse Violent Cop. I, I must have watched that VHS... I don't even think the first time I watched that, I watched it all the way through. I kind of had to give up and go back again. Yeah. Violent Cop is, is as interesting a film as any in that, um, and it, to this day, it's actually still, I think, probably my favourite Takeshi film. Um, some of that's probably down to the whole honeymoon thing. Mm. Um, but basically, in, in I suppose the closest comparison you could draw with a Western movie is I suppose it's, a, it's kind of a Japanese update of Dirty Harry. Yes. But that's not to say that you will recognise much of Dirty Harry in it. Um, it very much establishes Takeshi's trademark style, um, mm. certainly so far as his, as his um, Yakuza and or sort of gangster movies um, are concerned. We'll touch on some of the other stuff he's done later on because he does have two very distinct veins of, of filmmaking. But as pertains to his gangster stuff, he kind of sets his stall out here early. And I think it was, a, it was Kinji Fukasaku who was supposed to originally yes. direct this, but fell ill. Yes. So Katano basically took the reins, um, did a fairly heavy script rewrite, um, and we've ended up with this mesmeric piece about a police officer who is very quick to use violence as, as, a, as a tool, <laughs> as leverage in pretty much any situation. And while he's undergoing an investigation into a series of homicides which are related to, um, to drug dealing in, uh, in his home city, he discovers that one of his colleagues with whom he's quite close has actually um, been supplying drugs from within the police. So he ends up being murdered and Azuma finds himself torn between sort of that situation with, with pursuing the guys who are responsible for um, murdering his corrupt partner, but also the fact that his uh, sister has been kidnapped as well and is being used in many senses of the word by uh, one of the mm. guys who's responsible. And I think the reason I found this so difficult to parse, there are several reasons. One, at this point in my life, and I'm thinking I must have been around 15, 16, yeah. I hadn't understood that filmmaking could be quite this bleak. Yes. 
And to this day, I have in my personality a fairly nihilistic bent uh, to a certain degree and in certain situations, which I hold this film directly <laughs> responsible for. It's the first film I think I saw where I understood that in storytelling, sometimes the best story is one where nobody gets away clean, yeah. where there are absolutely no happy endings to be had, and that actually violence begets violence in a very real sense, and that if you are willing to use that level of violence upon people, you had better be prepared to receive a similar level yeah. of violence upon thyself. It's also the first time that I've really, it's kick-started my appreciation of stillness in cinema as well. Yes. Because for all that um, Takeshi's gangster films rely, well, so I suppose the yin and yang of his gangster films is that he balances moments of often unexpected, but almost always spectacular violence with great swathes of 35mm film, which essentially are just a copy and paste of one frame of his face. He's quite happy to let the camera sit on his his untwitching face for a good couple of minutes. That could be in any number of situations. He's very much a practitioner of stillness, which makes a very interesting contrast and actually makes those moments of violence, those punctuations of, uh, of violence, all the more spectacular. It's mesmerising in a way that one can't necessarily qualify all that well. Right from the off, you start seeing what his, uh, his, his auteurism is going to be, if you like. Uh, he, you can see that he's, you know, he said publicly, he's no fan of seeing people talk while the camera's swivelling around a room or anything like that. That's why you yeah. get these very long shots of people conversing. There's nothing particularly going on. There's another the kind of reverse face thing that you might have in quite a lot of the Western stuff. He's perfectly happy to have people just walk into the camera for about two minutes and then walk away from the camera for another three minutes. Uh-huh. As, as long as that's sort of telling the, the kind of, it's hitting the pacing that, that he needs to get out the rest of the story. And I think, I wonder how much of that comes from his, uh, his comedy background, because a lot of this film has, and it basically you can apply this to almost every film that he's done, has this incredible sense of timing in a way yeah. that, that really sort of punctuates the beats of the, the dramatic impulses of it much better than almost any Western film I've seen to this point. Not to say that there aren't them, of course, but uh, at this point in my career, I hadn't seen them. And this uh, really blew me away. Uh, That's just the pacing of it, the way that it can be so still for so long and have lots of stretches where there's not really much going on. No, Uh, not even even dialogue. No, uh, another hallmark of Kateshi's style. I think he would be happier if he could just direct films with no dialogue in them at all. And he's come close to doing that on a few occasions and there's not really an awful lot in Violent Cop. Uh, He would much rather explain things, as you say, just by facial expressions and little glances these things like that, it's, he's far more subtle of a storyteller than you would think, given the, the comedy background that he comes from. He's absolutely that respect. And sometimes even without the emotion, bizarrely, I mean, I can think of a couple of scenes in Violent Pop, one of them being, I suppose, the scene where um, someone attempts to stab him in the street. And he will, he'll, be, he'll quite happily have these scenes. And again, it's something absolutely mesmeric about it. Um, and it sounds a bizarre thing to say about something so intrinsically violent, but there's a scene where a guy tries to stab him and he turns around and he grabs a hold of his knife <laughs> with his hand with his bare hand. <laughs> and the two of them stand there for a good sort of 10, 15 seconds, just staring unblinkingly at each other. And yeah. not just unblinkingly, but completely dispassionately. No care one way or another on, on either <laughs> of their faces, uh, except for the fact, I think the guy trying to stab him is chewing a matchstick, which he may continue chewing or he may, he may <laughs> sort of pause chewing it. I'm not sure. And it's, it's the strangest, strangest thing. And it's not even some sort of cultural divide. It's very much Takeshi's style. Um, and I've, it's, it's not necessarily he's trying to say something through that. There's just something inherently cinematic about just in a situation like that, allowing the enormity of what's happening almost to disappear into the background and just to focus on, just yeah. to focus on two really interesting faces. 
There's and this, this essentially like a massive battle of wills, but just completely unspoken, completely silent, almost emotionless. It's bizarre. Yeah, it does occasionally lapse into what would seem to be a kind of something stolen from Western films. It's, it's almost like he, he, he will do a Mexican standoff, mm. uh, even if it's just people talking to each other, mm-hmm. which uh, somehow shouldn't work, but it really does. Uh, he, he manages to pull off this tremendous sense of drama from really nothing happening, which mm-hmm. is an incredible feat. Yeah, I hadn't seen anything at all like it at the time, and it just, uh, as I say, blew my doors of my mind apart. Yeah. I think and a lot of it is to do with the, the casting. I mean, I'm not sure how involved he is in the casting, but he's certainly worked with uh, one or two other actors regularly throughout his career. Whether or not he's directly involved, I'm not sure, but there's a real knack in his films for, for casting people, just really interesting characters to look at. Yeah. Um, as shallow as that sounds, a lot of even sort of incidental characters in these films, and I think about almost all of the characters in, in Violent Cop, he works with a group of actors who are just really fantastic at working with it and, and rolling with the way he likes to work. And who yeah. are equally as happy at sort of just minute upon minute of just stillness and silence. I think about the scene near the end of the film where the three guys are standing in the warehouse while um, yeah. the chat, I forget his name, while he's loading the guns, telling them, look, he's coming. There's no yeah. point in running. Yeah, um, this isn't going to work out well for any of us. And there's a good sort of two, three minutes where the guys are just standing there contemplating their fate and nobody's, <laughs> nobody's saying yeah. anything. There's a couple of thousand yard stairs there. And it's just, just this wonderful, wonderful sort of facial expression where yeah. Just, you, you have to see it to understand it. Yeah, and if you've not seen it, this is this is perhaps a spoiler, but it, again, it's just an ending which blew my mind, which I was not expecting. You've mentioned the, the, the bleakness mm. of it, which I don't think I'd seen anything quite so so uh, downbeat as this, but I mean, even no. the way it plays with your expectations and really it subverts what you would expect an ending like this to be, mm-hmm. because you may think this is all building to some sort of climactic showdown between the protagonist and the antagonist, and mm-hmm. actually, you know, you're wrong. Yeah. Without spoiling it, other parties intervene and you're, you're left with something that is in no way satisfying in the kind of narrative sense that it, you would expect it to be if, you, if it no. was a, a more conventionally plotted film. But that really made it all the more impactful for me. Yeah. yeah. And also, I think it touches on something that the, the, the lack of a happy ending thing. Also, what's important is that as a viewer, you sort of implicitly understand that although that's not the ending maybe you were hoping for, and and whether or not you were actually rooting for Takeshi's character, um, as to whether or not he's he's someone likable enough, despite his largely, I suppose, his good intentions as a police officer, um, the mechanics of how he goes about yeah. his work <laughs> don't necessarily make him sympathetic or likable in any way. But there's a very implicit understanding as a, as a member of the audience that although this might not be the ending you wanted, it's the ending that was deserved for all yes. of these people. Yeah. Um, and even to this day, I mean, just watching it again in the last couple of days there, for the first time in a few years, actually, I still was struck by just how, how bleak an ending that is and actually how, just how mesmeric and well-paced and well paced and actually, although it's, although it's violent also in, in a lot of ways, subtle um, and affecting that ending really is, uh, even to this day. Having, having, seen, having seen quite a few films now which have, I suppose, tried to ape that style and um, that nihilistic sensibility, then yes, I think it still, it still stands head and shoulders above a lot of those films and it's still my favourite Takeshi film, I think. I would want to pick between it and other films for, for some of it, but uh, it's, it's certainly very high up there. In terms of impact that it's had on my life, uh, there's probably no other film that has affected what I watch in cinema or how I think about how cinema works mm-hmm. as Violent Cop has. And for that reason alone, it's, it's just a tremendous way to introduce yourself to Takeshi Kitano if you haven't done already. 
thankfully there's now a, a quarterly decent DVD release. I don't think it's been able to release on Blu-ray. A lot of uh, Takeshi Tano stuff is not available on Blu-ray, which is mm-hmm. a, a crying shame. But yes, if, if you have not seen it, it's certainly well worth picking up and watching. It's, uh, it's an incredible bit of uh, filmmaking and uh, something that I think everyone really should be seeing. Yes, I would agree. I would agree. And it's a great introduction to the style, certainly of his his gangster movies. You will you will know after watching this film whether or not you are going to like Takeshi Kitano's work. But mm-hmm. even if even if it's something that you don't necessarily gel with on a first viewing, I would I would implore people to watch it again and, and see if they can pick up on the rhythm of it. Not to be patronizing, but there's definitely a rhythm and a style there that it might it might take a while for, yeah. for people to, to settle into that gear. But I think when you do it can be massively rewarding and, and so unlike anything else out there that you'll have uh, you'll have come across in the mainstream. What um what would we talk about next, Scott? I guess if Violent Cop is our introduction, where do we move from there? Well, I mean, we can just move through these chronologically, I think, more or less, because uh, although he did have a number of roles where he's acting in films rather than writing and directing, most of them are not all that interesting to talk about, I don't think. So we'll, we'll just take a, a quick run through them. Some of them have got mm-hmm. more to say about each other's. I mean, Boiling Point is a film that I think I watched as part of that same season and didn't impress yeah. me anything like as much. No. Uh, in fact, I remember just thinking, no, don't like this at all. It was a and, lot more uh, perfunctory, I think. Yeah, um, it's his first outing as a screenwriter, as a like from the start. Uh, I think that shows. I think a lot of me was just bored at first instance because it's uh, based around baseball at the start, but that seems a bit harsh. I watched it again recently, and I think it was being a little harsh in this film, but it's certainly in my sort of lower. 10 percentile of uh, Kitano films. It has some structural issues. It's basically about a, a young kid who's part of a baseball team, and after some run in his, the coach of the team, who's like an NX Yakuza, winds up being annoying the current crop of Yakuza who are knocking around. But he gets injured uh, quite uh-huh. severely, and the rest of the team kind of swears revenge. At this point, it's taken about, I guess, 45 minutes, about half the film, more or less, to get to this point. And as part of the revenge franchise, it's decided that the kid has to go off and get a gun by going off to uh, one of the Japanese islands where he meets Beat Takeshi. And at this point, it kind of goes off the rails because it feels like an entirely different film that's been parachuted in. Mm. Uh, structurally, it kind of doesn't hang together. You've got Takeshi Kitano going about doing some fairly, you know, again, some nihilistic things, but it seems like a character that's just appeared from nowhere to cause some mayhem and then vanishes again. Uh, so there's about a 30 minute stretch of him just causing all sorts of ruckus and uh, then they, they kind of the kid goes back and tries to carry out that plan and it's got a lot of things that don't really flow uh, it doesn't flow particularly well elements plot elements appear with no previous explanation and cause a little bit of a kind of eh, what where'd that come from where it could have been set up quite easily by like a line of dialogue before one sort of small scene structurally i don't think it was anything like his best work and i, I can't really recommend it it's still it has enough of katano's usual style and flair that he brings to it that makes it com- not completely redeemable but it's not something I would highly recommend anyone goes and seeks out. Uh, his next film, A Scene at the Sea, from 1991, is kind of, I, I would almost imagine, a response to people criticising that you can only do Yakuza films. It's, uh, it's quite the opposite, if I remember correctly. Yes, a, a young garbage corrector uh, one day finds a surfboard and decides to learn to surf. And <laughs> there's, well, narratively, that's doing it a bit of a disservice. That's mm. essentially what the film is. It's a, a, yeah. a kid learning to surf. He, he starts off kind of flailing around, not doing very well, and kind of the other surfers on the beach who are more experienced kind of laugh at him. But as pers- he perseveres, he learns to do it quite well. He gets accepted into a group. He's, uh, he's deaf and dumb, which is perhaps a bit of a trope given Catano's lack of dialogue. But that means that it's a very silent film as well. The, there's very little dialogue in it, but yet again, it, it works quite well as to show this guy's uh, relationship with his girlfriend and how that uh, is affected by his obsession with surfing. And it's another somewhat morose ending to the whole thing. Mm. 
I think it works quite well. It's a very somewhat melancholic piece. It's uh, it's quite sad. It's uh, but at the same time also has the moments of kind of happiness and uh, upbeat, positive nature, which is refreshing to see. It's got people overcoming challenges. It's a bit more conventional. Um, it's mm. very contemplative. I think is a word that's used quite often about it. And I think that does fit it quite well. I mean, all, yep. a lot of it's just kind of passively watching you know, people surfing and watching his, this guy kind of enjoying either his life or seeing other people surfing and enjoying it and how that kind of spreads to some of his friends as well. If he hadn't done films that are kind of of a similar vein later on in his career that I think are better than it, I would probably recommend it more highly as a sort of change of pace for Kitaro. As such, he has done better films, which we'll get on to, which are kind of plough a, a roughly similar trajectory. So it's more of these kind of ones that you'd mark down for interest. I enjoy it quite a lot. There's not really a Kateshi Kitano film that I don't like and wouldn't yeah. recommend on some level, but if you're putting them in order of, the, of, of when you should get around to it, I still think I've seen it to see is probably quite low on the list for me. Yeah, it's it's one of those films what it what it does do or uh, for our purposes was what it what it serves to do is actually introduce the viewer to the simple setup that so often yeah is at the heart of uh, some of Takeshi's films and how he iterates on that to expand the uh, the characters and the plot outwards but quite a few of these pieces actually start with a very very simple premise like you say yeah young dustman garbage collector finds a surfboard decides he wants to surf yeah um, take it take it from there Try to think where we move to after scene at the sea. I guess probably back to gangster territory yeah. for Sonatine, right? Which is um, yes. another of his much more well-known uh, movies here in the West. Yes, and um, I think rightfully so. Mm. Maybe it's actually easier to get into for this if you're wanting a, a kind of first Catano film to see. It's mm. uh, it's a really interestingly structured film because the first half of it, or something the first third perhaps, mm-hmm. is what you would expect a kind of common or garden Yakuza film to be, <laughs> as Catano uh, is sent to. Help out a friendly Yakuza clan to his his family to sort out a problem they're having as a little bit of a turf warfare with another mm. Yakuza family. Turns out not to be quite what it seems, but yeah. And then the next hour kind of subverts your expectations of that, right? Yes. The, the next hour is gangsters on holiday on a beach <laughs> and it is lurking around. It is amazing to watch. I, I, I don't think I've been quite so wrong-footed by a film in quite some time. But just simple joys of watching Kitano, like de- having having dug some pits on a beach, calling his <laughs> calling his gang members to no, come on, hurry, hurry, and watching them fall down a pit and laugh at them is endlessly amusing at the time and remains so to this day. <laughs> and there's probably, although even in his uh, sort of the most severe of his gangster movies, there is still usually some sort of vein of black humour. I think this is the first time that I'd seen him play. A around was sort of out and out sort of slapstick really and it, I wasn't expecting it to have been in one of his gangster films yes <laughs> yes it's an unusual addition but it does work mm. incredibly well I have some issues with the ending which the first mm-hmm. time I saw absolutely floored me again yeah. um, another one of these uh, endings a la violent cop that subverts your expectations somewhat when I've been watching that again on replay it seems a little bit cheap actually it doesn't mm-hmm. seem to come from anywhere no it's less of a statement than a sort of just random happenstance really as well not random happenstance Instance, but it's not it's not serving a great narrative or sort of character purpose really no, I don't think you know, narratively I don't think it works at all however mm. I can't deny that emotionally it still works to this day mm-hmm. the way that it's framed is really quite something to behold and I think it is really effective and it's, it's kind and of it comes something, as something of a slap in the face after that hour that has just preceded it yes as a way to effectively end a film it really does work incredibly well it's one of the most memorable endings to a, a Takeshi Kitano film 
that there is. I don't think it deserved that ending, though. Mm. Um, that's one of these quibbles that you come to think about after about three or four watches of it and when you've seen the rest of his work, though. You shouldn't dissuade anyone from watching it in the first instance because for that first time through, it is amazing. And the rest of the film, even if the, the ending was the worst ending in the world ever, it would still be worth watching for that first, mm-hmm. uh, for, well, it was really 90 minutes, I guess. Mm-hmm. Tremendously enjoyable film and certainly one of his best gangster outings and really, really quite remarkable. And again, another film I watched fairly early on in my career after trying to find out a few more works than his. I think by this point I was in university and managed to secure a VHS copy and uh, enjoyed it immensely then. So yep, definitely one to look out for. And from that sort of slapstick, well almost slapstick middle section of Sonatine, actually we head there to a (laughs) out and out random slapstick nonsense of uh, 1995's Getting Any, which I think the the first time I saw saw that was uh, was round at your gaff. Could well be. So again, a, another incredibly simple setup. Basically, <laughs> Takeshi not starring um, uh, centrally in this movie, although he does pop up as a scientist. If, yes, yes, of, of sorts. Yes. Yeah, of sorts. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> broadly speaking, a scientist. <laughs> Centering on a on a, a somewhat challenged young gentleman whose main goal in life seems to be to uh, to get laid, yeah. um, and to that end, he decides that he has to get a car which is sufficiently impressive enough, and then he will be able to get laid. Yes, and from there on, really, just a, a, a series of what would otherwise be completely disconnected uh, yeah. comic yes. slapstick vignettes that that just I think. What worked about this the first time I saw it was that I don't think I'd been exposed to enough, even at that, enough Japanese culture by this point, other than Takeshi's movies. Yeah. That the, the out-and-out randomness of it kind of floored me. And I'm and not was, altogether sure that first time I'd seen it, if I'd known that Takeshi Kitano was uh, really a comedian before now, I, I may no, not I have been aware of that. I, I may have just known so. him as a purveyor of bleak gangster movies. Yeah, I think you may be correct there. Um, and so, yeah, this is the first sort of out-and-out comedy that probably... I would I would suspect because obviously neither of us have seen really any of his early TV um, stand up output or his, mm-hmm. his you know his his, uh, his uh, double act the two beats um, I would guess this is probably the closest thing to that that we've so far seen and it, in a sense it worked purely the sheer randomness and and craziness of the thing absolutely had me in stitches the first time round um, however I have to say that going back and revisiting it recently recently I was I was much less impressed by it it's not a film that's aged particularly well. Um, no. If nothing else, there's lots, lots of things that date it very badly. Things like this, the, the whole mid-90s thing, of um, which I think was dying out by this point, more or less, but the gratuitous nudity and things like that mm. just kind of doesn't really do it any favours. I don't think mm. it really... It's not funny. and um, doesn't really help what it's trying to say normally, as the guy has his, his uh, vivid internal life. Uh, when I watched it again the other day there, it works well enough for about the first hour before mm. going off the rails, I think. It kind of runs out of juice and turns into a Godzilla sort of style parody towards the end and... Mm. Yeah, at that point, it's. I think it's ran out of comic mileage by that point. The first half's still probably zany enough to almost justify a watching, but he's not a particularly great film. I don't think it's... How much of that's cultural, I don't know. Obviously, comedy's very difficult to, mm. in any way, analyse. It's a, something that's either funny or it's not to you, and you can't really tell, explain why something's funny or not. Well, it's <laughs> the most It's the most subjective of the, yeah. uh, of the cinematic styles, isn't it? And then when you factor in the, you know, several thousand miles of geographical cultural uh, difference into the mix then it's, yeah. it's you know it's all it's that got... plus 20 years is it? yeah <laughs> exactly 
Exactly. And I think also the fact that, I mean, to a broader audience, probably if you haven't exposed yourself to that much um, Asian uh, culture, cinema or otherwise, I think it, it very much hinges on references to um, cultural yeah. norms in yeah. Japan. Like you, you touched on Godzilla, right? Yeah. Um, unless you are aware of what's happening there, you're not necessarily going to appreciate, you know, why these sort of strange <laughs> vignettes are popping up. or, or why, they, why they've collected Tokyo's most massive turd yeah. in the stadium. You won't, you won't understand why that's there. <laughs> It's all going to seem a little bit out there. Uh, Although, again, as I say, even to someone who gets, you know, a handful of, and at best a handful of the references in there, I still found it completely out there anyway. But yeah, it hasn't aged particularly well. And I think certainly one of the, one of the far less satisfying uh, pieces of his output that, that I've personally come across. There's a handful of running gags in there that I think still work relatively well, but it's mm. not worth looking at. And I think there's there's certainly funnier films that he's done later on that are more worthy of you seeing. So uh, I would probably, on balance, recommend that people give Getting Any a miss unless you're a completionist. Yeah. It's, it's not exactly a bad film. None of them that we'll talk about today are. However, well, actually, there's none of the Kitano films that we'll talk about that he's directed are. Um, but yes, it's not mm. particularly relevant in this day and age, and it's not all that great. So probably not worth the bother of trying to track down. No, and another film which probably isn't worth the bother, although you'd probably find it much easier to get hold of if you wanted to, was the first attempt at Hollywood uh, of shoehorning Catano into uh, a Western production, (laughs) which would be the... (laughs) Sorry, you were going to say... The the film that caused my momentary hesitation, what I said (laughs) a couple of sentences ago there. (laughs) Yes, 1995 saw the release of everyone's favourite Johnny Mnemonic, a film based on uh, William Gibson's short story of the same name, which um, on paper promises much, but on celluloid delivers very little, <laughs> um, apart from uh, techno Jesus, obviously. Um, we, I don't think it probably it probably stands for us to talk too much about Johnny Mnemonic, because at this point we've actually already recorded our commentary for it. Yes. Uh, which will be the next podcast you may want to listen to after you hear this episode. Yes. Uh, or, or don't listen to it. I entirely understand if you don't want to watch Johnny Mnemonic again. It's, uh... Yes, you would, you would only get the most out of that commentary if you actually bother to watch the film at the same time. And I'm not sure I'm going to recommend that to anyone. No, I'm, I'm not convinced I'd watched it before uh, the podcast that we did there. Mm. And having watched it, I'm now quite happy that I hadn't mm. until that point. And I, I certainly it's not a film that I will ever think about again. It's just not particularly good. No, no. Um, the West has always struggled to come up with uh, particularly useful vehicles for Asian stars. We've seen the same mm. kind of problems for Jet Li, for Chow Yun-Fat, uh, mm. many other people that it's, it's just never really working for. It's arguably yeah. worked better for the directors, hasn't it? The, the John yeah. Woo's rather than... Than the, uh, than the actors. Just, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, Johnny Mnemonic was a thing. And after wrapping up Johnny Mnemonic, I believe that following the film, this is when Catano had bought his scooter. So at some point between wrapping up on Johnny Mnemonic and the film being released in cinemas, yeah. Catano quite famously suffered fairly serious injuries in a, an accident on that scooter, mm-hmm. um, which depending upon which media outlets you listen to, he himself called an unconscious suicide attempt. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure how much stock I put in that or how much has been lost in translation there. But actually, the scars of that accident remain to this day because he was um, he was quite badly paralysed and had massive, massive surgery to regain use of his facial muscles. Yes. Uh, which has something which has um, been factored into his output ever since. Yeah. It, it's often said that it's particularly shown in the, the next film he did, Kids Return, where mm. after a period where he, he was convinced he may actually not do anything again. It was his first film back. He doesn't star in it at all. Uh, he doesn't appear in the film at all. It's uh, based around 
do young high school dropouts who effectively try and make their way in, in different walks of life. They start off as firm friends. They both start uh, at some point taking up an interest in boxing. One of them decides to keep going with this and play things through to the end. The other one falls into a, a life of gangsters with uh, the, the local Yakuza. And I think it's fair to say that it's a film where things don't really work out particularly for either character. They both wind up uh, either having you know other people's bad habits kind of forced mm. onto them and uh, basically kind of come up a way where they, they fail in what their objective is. And the point of the film is not so much whether these characters you win or lose. It's uh, The point of it is if you do lose, what happens then? Where, where do you search for meaning after that? And it ends on a very open note. It's not a particularly depressing film. It doesn't feel like these characters are particularly lost hope, but they're certainly not going to do the thing that they thought were doing mm. when you read what Catano's been interviewed about at the time he's he's suggesting that you know a lot of people think uh, that when you're you're young you can try anything and you've got the time to recover from it and do something else with your life if that first plan doesn't work out and he's suggesting that maybe in Japanese culture actually you can't that these mm. guys might not be able to do anything but that doesn't really come across in the film I think it ends relatively openly um, mm-hmm. there does seem to be ways that these guys you could imagine go off and do something that's particularly more uh, entertaining some of the guys that are featured in it, some of the minor characters actually do wind up succeeding in what they're doing. Two young kids who wind up being comedians doing a, a, an act that is in some ways reminiscent of what uh, mm-hmm. the two beats were, uh, as far, well, from what I've read. Uh, <laughs> it is a film that is actually, it's tough to recommend. I think it's worth watching just to get your idea of where Takeshi Kitano was at the time, because a lot of things later on will sort of very clearly reflect what he's thinking and what he's going through at the time. And this is probably the earliest instance of that where he's really making his psyche bear on the, on celluloid. And from that instance, it's certainly well worth looking at. I've got to say, it's not the most enjoyable film to watch, though. Mm-hmm. Um, it's quite a tough watch. The actors, while well, they do quite well, they're not quite engaging enough, I think, to really pull it off. They're doing okay for for relatively young actors, but there's a certain lack of spark or charisma to it that makes it a little bit tough to go all the way through watching the film. And I I question whether I would have... Well, that's a bit of chicken and egg thing. If if this didn't have the Kadeshi Kadano film name on it, I probably wouldn't give this the time of day. Um, Mm -hmm. But the reason that it's worth the time of the day is because Takeshi Kitano made it and it reflects what he's going through at the time so that's mm-hmm. maybe not a valid criticism to put at it and not as not as bleak and nihilistic as some of his other serious output no no it's worth watching because it's the start of where Kitano does something more than just tell a story mm. that he's got in his mind. It's where he's trying to work through something and he actually puts it on film, which not an awful lot of filmmakers do to this day. Yeah, it's more, it's more, am I, it's been a long, long time since I saw Kids Return. I'm just saying, is it fair to say that it's a more introspective piece than we've seen from him at this point? Absolutely, yes. Mm. Everything that the guys on, well, certainly the two main characters are struggling with is quite clearly reflecting something that Takano's uh, struggling with. And that's a nice way to kind of see a director's mind working and how he mm. translates that into a film output. It's got a lot of interesting film nerd connotations that make it quite recommended to watch. If you simply want to watch an enjoyable film, it's probably not the one to go to. No. Um, but if you got to the point where you've watched like multiple Takeshi Kitano films, then certainly yeah. it's, it's the one to actually see. If, you, if your purpose is to understand him as a filmmaker, then it's mm-hmm. kind of essential, I suppose. Absolutely, yes. And then, of course, at some point in the in the intervening um, months or years here, you, you took up painting yes. as a hobby, which was another creative outlook for him. And that painting features fairly heavily in the next film that we probably want to mention, which is Hannah B., which to this day, I think, is still his most, it's certainly his most awarded. And I think 
probably his most um, critically acclaimed film, right? Yes, and it's, it is my favourite Takeshi Kitano film. It, for various reasons, I didn't mention it during the uh, our favourite films podcast, but it's probably my favourite of his output, and I think it's highly recommended viewing for absolutely anybody. Mm. It features, in the largest part, it's, it's kind of falling back to some degree on what he did with Sonatine in particular. He's playing a cop who eventually kind of gets to, is made to retire. He finds out that his, well... We find out that his wife is suffering from a terminal disease after some initial output with the, the cops where he, he basically does enough to earn the enmity of people who will play a part in the final act. He winds up basically just taking probably about at least the last third, maybe half of the film mm-hmm. off simply to tour Japan with his wife and see various things before the the end occurs. It's another film that kind of slightly wrong foots you because it's starting off with, well, Kitano's on the cop side of the Yakuza uh, film. It's starting off essentially something like something similar you may have expected to have seen from before, uh, before turning into something that's a lot more tender, a lot more emotionally mature, um, mm. a lot more touching. And it's one of those incredible films that just packs such an absolute punch at made me uh, actually it sort of brings tears by to this day and I'm, I'm mm-hmm. unlike yourself um, you won't make me saying I'm sure um, I, I tend not to be particularly affected by a lot of films but this one really does um, there's very few films that affect me on such an emotional level as the ending of Hannah B and the, yeah. the last third of this film is just uh, heartbreaking to me to this day well, you can imagine uh, the state I was in when I, when I first watched it yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think from his point of view as a, as a filmmaker, but again, I'm not sure whether it's anything to do with the point of where he's at in his life, but it's, it's certainly the first film, and again, probably to this day, the best example I've seen actually tackling any depth a female character. Yeah. Because it's not something that has, has cropped up in his output really at all um, up yeah. until this point. Certainly not that I've, uh, in any of the, the movies that I've seen, and I, I want to say I've seen all of his um, directorial efforts up to and including this. So um, I think that's probably what was most affecting about it for me that it's um he was opening up his emotional chakras for the first time yeah. um which is not necessarily true but it's the, it's the first time that i think he'd, he'd tackled emotion other than anger to this this kind of depth and uh massively massively rewarding and it doesn't surprise me that it's still his most celebrated film although it's, it's not necessarily my favorite i think certainly on a, a technical and a filmmaking level it is absolutely objectively yeah. his best movie it's just that I have a particular fondness for uh, for VC, sure. obviously. It's also perhaps another one where you can combine the elements that you might have needed to get from uh, Kids Return, because it's mm. also clear that the uh, partner that uh, Kitano has at the start, who winds up being confined to a wheelchair for the remainder of the film and taking up painting, is perhaps the clearest Kitano parallel you could yeah, draw. Yeah, it's definitely um, an analogue for himself, yes. isn't it? Yes, almost a little bit too heavy-handed, but again, that that works particularly well. Um, his his statements, where he's you know at, at points despairing and uh, of, of what's going to occur to the rest of his life, reflects an awful lot of things that I think that Kitano must be working through at the time, and yeah, is also just a very sad story, um, which mm. just helps to pack the emotional punch of the film. Um, yeah, but it deserves the amount of plaudits that it gets. Uh, the the usual thing is. Well, the usual thing to read is that the loft Catano's uh, film, although they were quite well received abroad, didn't get an awful lot of uh, critical acclaim uh, back in Japan. And this was the first thing that people actually opened up their minds to seeing him as a, something other than just a, a comedian. This show mm-hmm. is a guy that actually has dramatic chops both to act in and write and direct these sort of films that can hold a bit more emotional content rather than just trying to make you laugh and deserves all the plaudits that it gets in my mind. A mm-hmm. tremendous film and the one that to this day haunts me. It's... Uh, Another same sort of ending as Sonatine. It's, uh, this one, however, 
this has the ending that Sorrentine wishes that it had, yeah. uh, where Sorrentine took a rather cheap way to do it. It's built in such a way at the end of Hannah B that's absolutely heartbreaking in a way that really is narratively and uh, emotionally justified by everything that's gone up before it. And again, it's just another one that absolutely floored me at the time. And even to this day, it's just the way that it shows what happens and another sort of trademark thing of Catano, although he's very comfortable showing lots of violence and aftermath. Occasionally, he won't show the actual act itself, which mm-hmm. is all the more effective. Uh, mm-hmm. Something that horror movies, uh, of course, would show you this day. You don't, you don't necessarily need to show the monsters. You just can show the aftermath of it, and that's what's more effective. And that kind of thinking plays into the ending of this. It's a tremendous ending, and it's a tremendous film. Love it. Yeah, I would agree. I would absolutely agree. And then I suppose in the intervening years, actually, less um, for the next two or three years, uh, no directorial output. Concentrated more on uh, his acting. Uh, I say career. I'm pretty sure at this point in Japanese culture, Katano could pretty much walk onto the set of whichever movie he wanted and just yeah. take part. Um, <laughs> but I suppose probably the one that people will be most familiar with, certainly the Western audience, would be uh, Battle Royale, uh, in which he plays the teacher of the class who are selected for the Battle Royale. Battle Royale is quite amazing. Perhaps we'll circle back to Gahato, perhaps, but um, yeah, ba- mm. Battle Royale is absolutely tremendous. Um, it falls into the same camp, I would imagine, as great films that Takeshi Kitano is in, rather than anything to really do with Takeshi mm-hmm. Kitano himself, but as cameos, it is the single most effective cameo that I've ever seen. That's maybe perhaps doing a bit of a disservice to the role that Kitano plays in Battle Royale, but mm-hmm. it's, it is, for those who have not seen it, a film about a, a group of Japanese school kids who are forced, reality TV style, to battle each other to the death. There will be one, out, one winner who will... Uh, presumably win the prize of being allowed to not die. Um, it's <laughs> the, the lazy um, analogue being, of course, it's it's Lord of the Flies updated for a modern audience. Yeah. And again, you know, as in, in the same vein that we've seen updated recently with the um, the Hunger Games. Yes. But certainly a, a, far, a far more impactful film on, on pretty much every level than any Good of those. Lord, yes. <laughs> and a, a shock to even to people who would have read Lord of the Flies as well, actually. But yes, I think that's, again, that's, uh, I talk about Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, but actually Battle Royale to some degree has become, uh, has become something of a, a touchstone even in Western culture. A, a lot of people are aware of that film. And again, it's, it's one of those roles that you're, you may actually be likely to, to recognise him from. Um, mm-hmm. Even if it doesn't form part of his writing or uh, directorial output, it's certainly worth touching on from the perspective of his career. Yeah. And of course, as you pointed out, Scott, I've completely skipped Gohato. One last thing in Battle Royale. It shows off what tremendous charisma the guy has. He's not got an awful lot to do in Battle Royale, but if he's not the most uh, memorable and effective character in it, then I don't, I don't know who else would be contending mm-hmm. for that. But yeah, it's such tremendously impactful performance given that he's, his relatively limited screen time. Kind of the same in Gahato. Gahato's a very good film, but it's not really got an awful lot to do with Kateshi Kitano. He's, uh, mm-hmm. again, sort of playing second fiddle to a, a commander and a militia where... The central character is a, a young 18-year-old, I believe it is, a beautiful young boy who joins the militia as something of a bishonin, I believe is the, the character trope. Mm-hmm. He causes friction by certain people, uh, to certain people in the grounds who are perhaps attracted to his uh, slightly effeminate looks. And uh, it's, uh, it's an interesting film. It's uh, got a lot of quite nice sort of period detail. That kind of uh, Shogun era stuff all works quite well. It's, it's very well regarded and I, I recommend it. It's a good film to watch, but it's it's not really got an awful lot to do with Kiteshi Kitano, really. He's, no. uh, he's an actor in it, but he's not the most impactful in it. Certainly nothing like as impactful as the character he 
plays in Battle Royale despite having a fairly similar if not more screen time in Gahato but he's largely reduced to exposition in this mm-hmm. film and it's a bit of a waste really he doesn't have an awful lot to work with and doesn't have an awful lot to do but yeah. it's- again something really for the completest right it's not it's it's not going to afford you any insight into his uh, his practice as a filmmaker or no, um, no, no, nothing to do with uh, Catano's work. Now, it's a very good film, I think. I don't want to minimise it in that respect. Is this the, is this the one that certain, people in certain territories might recognise this as, as taboo? Yes. Yes, another That's name one. under which it, it's uh, it's uh, sometimes sometimes available. Sorry, I had to think there for a second. Yes. That's another film that uh, we've skipped over there was Kikijiro, Kikijiro. which is a, a very interesting film. And it's if you're going to watch something that is more of his kind of light-hearted comedic output. This is probably the one I would recommend. It's the one that's kind of held up best throughout the years, I think, uh, at the same time. It's also been quite strong in the dramatic context. The story is kind of almost a fable, really. Um, mm. He's playing someone who's implies, I guess, if not outright states, is a, an ex who's kind of kicking around, not doing particularly much. He and his uh, girlfriend stumble across, say, the protagonist is actually a, a young child who comes up to summer holidays. His friends uh, all go off for various adventures and then he decides he's living with his grandmum and decides that he should go off to visit his mum in a, a town that is actually around about three hour drive I think it is I looked it up it's about a three and a half hour drive away from Tokyo where this is set <laughs> in instance and uh, he decides to go off and vi- visit her um, but although her grandmother's not able to, to kind of go along for the ride because she's busy working and uh, this arbitrary Yakuza who basically he's never met decides oh I'll just accompany him which is not really a, a message you'd want to, to imply to your young kids I think at no. this point uh, don't, no. don't, don't, don't go on trips with a Yakuza that's probably not the way forward for uh, anyone's safety but it turns into a bit of a road movie where he's trying to meet his, uh, his mother and it works tremendously well although it's not even remotely realistic or serious No, and I had actually completely forgotten about Kikijiro and I realised now that I'd never actually seen it and I should probably correct that quite soon It's actually yes. a, a bit of a gaping hole which is uh, in my Takeshi knowledge which is why I've somehow managed to skip over it uh, because he actually did write and direct this film um, yes. So I'm, when I say he did nothing between 97 and 2000, I'm talking rot. <laughs> it's it's a really good film. I, I highly recommend it. It doesn't hold a lot of water in a, if you want sort of a gritty realism for it, but it's a tremendously enjoyable kind of little film to watch. It's uh, mm. it's not exactly a feel-good comedy either. It does have its moments of, of emotional heartbreak, but it's in this instance, it's not at all the focus of the film. It's about this young kid kind of coming to terms with, with some things in his life, helped by an unusual assortment of people uh, that they come across as they kind of try and hitch a lift across this one is is what is a a very, I think it's even a two and a half hour train ride turns into a a multiple day disaster of an output as they try and get across. They meet various characters, such as a couple of bikers who are quite well quite well mannered and like him, and a, a prospective journalist who t- that's around, and they go camping, do all sorts of sort of crazy stuff, and just kind of essentially just play. Uh, a lot of the film is just based around kids playing. Um, mm. The kids in this instance is one small kid and three or four 20, 30, 40, 50 year old kids, but you know, they're still kids and just having quite an interesting and fun little time playing silly little games and still showing a little bit of uh, Kitano's mean streak. It's a really enjoyable film. It's frequently really quite funny. Narratively, it's not doing anything particularly complex, but uh, I think on an emotional level, it works awfully well and it's, it's funny and it's enjoyable and it's quite lighthearted and it has its moments of pathos and its moments of, uh, moments of levity to balance all that out. And it's a, it's a really nice, easy watch. And uh, yeah, for, for that reason, highly recommend it. And then, of course, 2000 and 2002, Brother and Dolls, which... Bit of a, a bit of a one-two punch to his career because 
two films which um, I I remember quite liking Brother actually, but it met with fairly um, fairly poor critical response uh, both in Japan and abroad. Yeah, um, and the same with Dolls, which for some reason sort of turned some critics against him at that point in his career. I could have sworn I'd watched Brother um, a long time, more or less, when it first when it came out, and mm-hmm. not really thinking much of it, and went on. If that is the case, I more or less had forgotten about it in the intervening years until I watched it quite recently. Mm-hmm. And I think my memory, if nothing else, is being somewhat harsh on it. It's fine. Mm-hmm. It's uh, I think it was at one point it was envisaged as a kind of spiritual follow up to Sonatine, and on that instance, it delivers. Mm-hmm. My only real knock against it is that it doesn't really bring anything new to the table apart no. from being not in Japan. It's a, uh, it's a fish out of water, Jacuza. Uh, Jacuza? <laughs> Somewhere between a Jacuzzi and a Yakuza. It's a fish out of water, Yakuza, Yakuza caper. It's perfectly acceptable. I just think it doesn't really bring anything new to the table mm. at all. I think I watched it at a period where I was just quite happy to lap up anything he'd done and sort of in a very disposable way, found it perfectly enjoyable, and I haven't really gone back and watched it again. But I do remember thinking it was it, it was it was a better film than critical reception would have had you believe. Probably accurate. It's still not great though. Um, mm. It's perfectly acceptable, but because it is, it, it's playing so close to type that it doesn't really bring anything particularly interesting to say either on a narrative or just the filmmaking technique. There's nothing in here that you've not seen before, apart from the fact that some of the guys are, you know, American rather than completely Japanese. It's worth watching. I mean, if you have a severe aversion to subtitles, then perhaps this would be as as good a place to start as any, given it has less of them than usual. But that's about the only uh, significant difference that I can see between it and some of his earlier works like Sonatine. There's nothing in here that is particularly different. Perhaps the only thing I can say about it is the first film that's kind of focused on being a Yakuza and how that would play out all the Mm. way throughout without taking diversions into sort of other arguably far more interesting territory as they look a bit more into the the characters. This is really more about the the mechanics of how you would expand your turf and uh, get how the inter-family loyalty and all that kind of stuff works. So if you want a straight up uh, gangster movie, perhaps this would be the place to go. That's about the only thing I can say about it that's in its favour, absolutely. The rest of it, I think, is covered better by other Kitano works, and mm. it's it's a bit of a it's a bit of a middle of the road effort from him for me. It's, I can't I can't remember the circumstance of this movie, whether or not it was another vested attempt to actually infiltrate the, the Western cinema market, or if it was purely a function of the story that he wanted to tell that um, it was set in Los Angeles instead. I can't I can't I can't remember that. I want to say that at the time I had a better understanding of of what it was about, but. Um, the circumstances around the production, but it all seems kind of lost in the, the mist now because, as I say, it wasn't that fantastically well received. So, if anything else, it was more of a kind of hard headed commercial uh, mm. decision from Gutano. There was a lot of interest in Yakuza movies at the time in the West. So, I know how to make Yakuza movies. Why don't I do one? Seems yeah. to be more or less the thought process behind it. And I think that kind of is reflected in the film. It's an old fashioned Yakuza movie that doesn't really give it, bring anything new to the table. Does every film need to bring anything new to the table? Is it perfectly acceptable just to be a competent example of, an, of a, the art form that's already there? I'd argue yes. Certainly there's no reason for me to say, don't watch Brother, you won't enjoy it. I think it's a, it's a perfectly reasonable film if you're in the mood for that kind of thing. Um, it's just nothing remarkable in it to me. And then uh, back to back to a slightly more um, gentle emotional side with Dolls in 2002. Another yeah. film which I, which I haven't actually watched yet. Dolls hadn't seen until recently. Um, mm. I don't know. There's something about Dolls. I think if it's, this was not well received, and I think that's completely unfair. Dolls haunts me to this day. Admittedly, it's only been a few days. Uh, but 
<laughs> dolls is it's really interesting. There's any number of reasons why I can say that it's not really a particularly good film. And lots of things don't hang together particularly well, and it's three sort of separate vignettes, kind of held very loosely together by a, a linking device of two uh, bound beggars, based loosely on a true story of two two kids. Essentially, that starts off with a, a young executive we're introduced to him marrying the his boss's daughter as a way to kind of bring forward his career, mm. having jilted a previous, you know, long-term girlfriend who's basically tried to take her own life and has kind of uh, gone a little bit insane and is now checked in asylum, uh, kind of overcome by guilt. He kind of bails out in the wedding and breaks the girl out of the sanitarium and they go around Japan wandering bound by a ribbon to stop her kind of going off and getting into trouble after some kind of early near disasters and from there it kind of leads into a few other films such as a, an old retired Yakuza who kind of goes back to find his uh, first love from oh, I guess 40 something years perhaps before and some other other elements it shouldn't really work and for a lot of people I can imagine that it simply wouldn't work but for me it, it kind of hangs together it's more better thought of as a mood piece than it is anything to do with the actual narrative itself. Um, it's a lot of, almost, again, almost kind of fable-like. Uh, it's, it's more of a, a treatise on how love can or can't work in various scenarios, and uh, it's almost looking at the more negative sides of what love can, can provoke, um, mm. but how, perhaps, it's all worth it in the end, how you can get endings that are, again, maybe not exactly happy in the... Uh, storybook sense of the word but they're they're satisfying and they they've, they've made people better characters by the end of it there's something in dolls that is really quite special it's maybe something that Kitano didn't quite get his hands around perhaps uh, i struggle to see what i would have changed to make this film better if nothing else on a visual level it's his most beautiful work by some distance I would say even to this day it was the first film where he started to really look at the uses of colour and these kind of ways that he could affect emotion it works really well on an emotional level narratively yes it's a bit of a mess a bit underdeveloped for for want of a better term in that, that regard but emotionally I think it really does uh, it, it goes straight for the heart and bypasses my logic centres and on that basis it really does work I think there's something here that's really quite touching I think it kind of depends on the mood you're in when you watch it to be honest mm. how susceptible you're going to be to it certainly it's not perfect and you need to kind of view it with certain things in mind which means that it's clearly not a good film um, if, it was, <laughs> if, it, if it was good then it would be you wouldn't need to kind of make yeah. some sort of apology for it but regardless of all that really did touch me on, on a level so it, is, it may well become one of my favourite Catano films. Um, I'm going to have to bump yeah. that up my list. It's really interesting. The problem is that it may well be something you don't find interesting mm. <laughs> in which case it will be kind of completely disposable but for whatever reason whether the mood was in or just whatever transitory nature was going through my head at the time this really this really punched me in the, the emotional gut and uh, does, does quite a number on me so I, I quite enjoy it. I can easily see why people might not like it but I did, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then I suppose I think actually, if I recall correctly, the first Katano film that I got a chance to see in the cinema, and I believe it was with yourself and Mr. Tavendale, uh, Zatoichi. 2003 saw the release of Zatoichi, um, which was very much something of a return to form. If, if you're familiar at all with Japanese uh, literary and film culture, you will probably understand Zatoichi, the, the character, the, the famous or infamous blind swordsman. Um, there have been many adaptations uh, over the years. Most successfully, of course, uh, Blind Fury with Rutger Hauer. There you go, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yes, most successfully in, in Blind Fury, but here Katano <laughs> playing a close second. 
Um, to Rutger Hauer. Um, no, uh, Zatoichi is um, Kitano's take on that. And I, again, I think after Hannah B, his most awarded film, I think. And I was quite pleasantly surprised. I hadn't actually watched any of the previous sort of Blind Swordsman movies. So I, although I was aware of Zatoichi, the character, I hadn't actually... Um, hadn't actually experienced any of it. And I have to say I was pleasantly surprised by this. I'm going to say something, and even as I even as I say it, I'm aware of the fact I'm not necessarily going to be able to qualify it, but it still feels like a very contemporary film to me. Okay. Does that make sense at all? Well, it, it's clear that Kitano did a lot of updating to the, the kind of format to it. I mean, it's, it's of course, a period piece that's set uh, back mm. in the, uh, I would imagine, late 1800s off the top of my head. Sorry, I should, I should, I should qualify that. What I mean is sort of stylistically as a, as a piece yes. of filmmaking. Yes, exactly. Obviously, it's a period piece, but in a, in a stylistic filmmaking sort of sense, it still feels very fresh. Yeah. Of all of his films, it's the closest it comes to being a kind of more mainstreamly edited film, I think. It still mm. largely has lots of scenes where it's a, a very long shot, both in terms of distance and in duration mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. things like that. But in terms of the way he captures some of the violence, I think it's perhaps more contemporarily shot, perhaps. It's a bit mm. more more action-heavy in those instances, um, at the same time as kind of having you know oodles of character to both the, both uh, Katano's character himself and a lot of the supporting acts as well. Yeah, and I think it's actually, it's, it probably shouldn't come as much of a surprise that he felt compelled by this character because in a way it plays very much into the hands of that sort of stillness and measured approach that we touched on earlier, right? This this character who's who's forced to rely on the remainder of his senses rather than sight and how on earth that plays out. I mean, on paper, obviously, it sounds ludicrous that this person would be a master swordsman. Yeah. But it all kind of makes sense, and especially so with uh, Kitano in the lead and on writing and directing duties. It kind of, it kind of sits really... I want to say perfectly with his his sort of sensibilities. Yeah, it's a proper sweet spot for him. It's and perhaps in a way it's a little surprising that he decided to go with this because, of course, there's a, a scene in uh, Getting Any which is basically parodying this whole this whole nature as uh, the idiot savant kind of works his way into a, a role of being the blind swordsman and mm. it's played much more for laughs in that instance. And while there's certainly elements of humour running through Gitano's own stab at it, it's a much more successful dramatic film as well. I think it, it works on a number of levels. So it, was, it has great action. It has has a great way of utilising the strengths that. Tano's uh, brought through his previous works in a way that is perhaps more accessible to the mainstream. It is endlessly enjoyable and ends on a nice dance number, so what's not to love? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I mean, if, if you're not familiar with the material, basically, I suppose um, in a quick plot recap sense, Zatoichi doesn't go about marketing himself as a master swordsman. Actually, he's more of a masseuse, right? Yes. But he stumbles into this town, basically, which has been overrun by, uh, by gangs and lorded over by uh, a particularly powerful samurai. Um, and I guess he he uh, he redresses the balance on behalf of the uh, the townsfolk. Yeah, it's a lot like kung fu in that regards. Mm. Uh, he he uh, the kind of character of Ichi or Satoichi uh, is a, a character who will wander through Japan and kind of right wrongs as he goes. Kind of the littlest hobo with a sword and no eyes. Yes, <laughs> and less dog like. <laughs> That's clearly the most sensible way to approach it. Yeah, no, a really, really effective film, actually, with, with a good deal of... It's very much a sweet spot for him. It's kind of a perfect blend of uh, the action, the sort of the, the flashes of violence that you'd expect, and they are all very much um, very, very quick sort of shocking moments, in it, and then they're done. Yes. Um, a good deal of humour. There are, uh, if I remember correctly, there are a couple of sort of song and dance numbers in there as well, which you probably yeah. weren't expecting, which all yeah. lends it a sort of a very sort of fun air, so... 
Yeah, I mean, a lot even, of it's... Even uh, though there's a very sort of violent subject matter at its heart, it's, it's actually surprisingly accessible and a, and a good deal of fun. Yes, um, a lot of it, he winds up helping two uh, young geishas, one of whom is actually a man, and who winds up, their family was slaughtered by the, uh, the, the Yakuza, well, not Yakuza, the, the, the gangs that's running the town, yeah. and they're, they're there to seek vengeance, and they're trying and to affect that aim, and Satoichi helps them. Uh, which is kind of partly where you see the dance numbers coming in. And, uh, of course, there's a, the dance festival at the end. It's quite a memorable way to end things. But even the, the way that... Uh the way throughout the film he uses things like the it's just workers in the field but they're stamping along in time to the uh, the incidental music that's going the soundtrack mm-hmm. of it uh, so there's, there's lots of like nice little clever filmmaking touches that don't exactly break the fourth wall but certainly tap on it a few times um, but it all works particularly well I think it all hangs together really nicely yeah uh, and that, that sort of that's, that synchronisation thing sort of lends the whole thing a sort of sense of pace as well that it might not otherwise have had yeah well, it's a really interesting piece of his output and actually I think Still, the only the only one of his films that I saw in a cinema, and I'm quite glad actually because it is a very very cinematic experience. If that doesn't sound like an obvious thing to say, <laughs> um, I, I'm I'm glad I got a chance to catch that on the big screen. Very much enjoyed it. It's quite unlike most of his other work, actually. So, and then after Zatoichi, uh, where do we find ourselves? Takeshi's the uh, self-titled. This is the first instalment in a trilogy, right? I'm not actually familiar with this this um, this period of his work. Shockingly, so I'm going to let you. I'm going to let you fill us in on that. Trilogy, I think, might be pushing it, but there's certainly two films that are clearly, it says autobiographical. It's not really. Uh, Takeshi's is... It's kind of a silly autobiography, right? Takeshi's is sort of pitched somewhere between a Charlie Kaufman film and a fever dream. Uh, (laughs) It is, for want of a better term, barking. Kitano is playing himself, uh, going through the process of kind of finishing off one of his films, uh, and then he meets his doppelganger, someone who's uh, kind of the the blonde-haired Takeshi that you would think of as from some of the earlier films, at which point it becomes somewhat unusual. It kind of then concerns itself more with the his doppelganger's life, who is more of a jobbing actor. He's going for extra roles. He's works in a convenience store part-time, except his life winds up getting interwoven with parts of the film that was being made in the outset by Takeshi Kitano, uh, at which point it becomes a bit Lynchian in terms of what the hell's going on. I was going to say, that sounds like a fairly big uh, undertaking narratively, right? Yes. uh, I mean, narratively, it holds no water. It is uh, Mulholland Drivian in that regard. It is something that is is mesmerising to watch, but it doesn't actually make a, a lick of sense. There's something quite entertaining about it. It's it's kind of a intriguing to watch and again it's, it's autobiographical, not in any sort of narrative sense, but um, it's one of these instances where you can see that it's kind of cycling through previous works that he's done. There's references to his previous filmmaking not as much as we'll, as we'll see in one of his later films, but it's certainly something that you can only really get an awful lot of enjoyment out of, I would say, if you're quite intimately familiar with his, his uh, previous canon. Um, it's certainly not a good instance to start from. Um, I, think, I think the reason I tuned out at this point really and took very little interest in these films was just that I felt like it was probably going to be too big an investment on my part and, and for whatever reason I just didn't feel that <laughs> I had I had the heart to invest myself but now that I hear you um, talk about it in terms of Mulholland Drive as a bit of a touchstone or something then I, I immediately want to, to uh, rectify that. It's one of these films that you can only really watch as a sort of dreamlike uh, mm-hmm. logic it, it kind of flits between things and you know, it doesn't really make a lot of narrative sense. It perhaps outstays its welcome a little bit. It's maybe a little bit too long to to maintain the uh, the dream world that it's uh, it's inhabiting. 
by the time it sort of ties things together at the end, although not really, um, it is kind of straining at, at the weight of its own uh, ambition. It's certainly something that I think that is worth watching. And if you've watched a lot of his work up until now, then it's, it's kind of an interesting sort of end piece to, to that. However, it's certainly nothing like uh, a place where you could just start from. Taken in isolation it's a strange mess it would still perhaps work I think even if you didn't know anything about his, his previous works. It's not so heavily dependent on it but it would help to be familiar with it. However it's uh, if you hadn't seen, if you didn't have an affection for Catano's work this would be a, a strange place to start and I'm not quite sure how you could take it on its own merits. And so then how does Glory to the Filmmaker carry on from that because it's part of the same series right? Yes, now Glory to the Filmmaker I think would work far better in isolation. Perhaps it's best to describe it as being if if you were in a meeting where Kitano was just pitching random film ideas to you and then you just took that and made a film out of that pitch meeting, that's perhaps <laughs> what you get here. It, it kind of cycles quite effectively through various sort of forms of, of drama or films that he'd he's either been known for, might look at it to, uh, investing in sort of from sort of the Yakuza stuff to uh, sort of like more romantic comedies to kind of 50s period dramas, that kind of thing. And it for the first half hour or so, it's, it's kind of cycling really rapidly through these various different forms of film and each sort of vignette is uh, quite intricately uh, done and really well-imagined little slices of narrative, slices of film, and that, that kind of works really well. And it's, it's very funny. It's, it's actually one of the few films that's got a narration that is, <laughs> actually enhances the film greatly. It's, a, it's got a very funny uh, mm. narration sort of linking all the stuff between it as kind of essentially working as uh, Catano's monologue, uh, internal monologue. And so then Achilles and the Tortoise, which ostensibly then is, is the, the bookend of of the supposed trilogy is is it actually such a thing or is it completely removed from that well I guess thematically it probably does uh, Glory to the Filmmaker I think is probably the most successful of them it's the it's most it's certainly the funniest and it's the most uh, conventionally successful I think it works uh, it shows off his uh, his comedic side more than anything else Achilles and the Tortoise is perhaps a little bit more metaphorical it's uh, based around Takeshi in this instance being a, a painter who's it is his only dream in life to become a successful painter uh, from an early age and he go- goes through life uh, trying to make that happen and essentially not doing particularly well of it and the, the eventual effects this has on his mm. initially understanding wife who eventually kind of breaks and the, his daughter who uh, is not quite so understanding for very, <laughs> very real reasons. It's quite heavy-handed in terms of uh, how it would be seen with Takeshi's life. I think it's... In that instance, perhaps it's, it's a bit too on the nose. Um, Takeshi will come up with a painting and take it to one of his his art dealer uh, friends who will criticise it for being you know, too like some other painter. Or in this instance, it's pretty clearly he's, he's kind of acting as a cipher for a film critic who's saying it's too similar to other Yakuza works. Why don't you try something else? So he tries something else and he says, yes, well, it doesn't have quite the, the impact and it's too derivative of this or that or the other. And it, it's essentially it boils down to a never-ending series of Kitano trying to get respect for his art both in the film uh, sense of this the art the, the artwork the, the paintings that he's producing and of course the, the more general sense of him putting his works towards a kind of mass market it has its moments I think it's, it's an enjoyable film it, it's nothing like his straight flat out comedy as the uh, previous glory to the filmmaker but it still has its moments that's uh, it's quite amusing uh, it has moments of very dark influences in there as well so it kind of haunts back to some of his earlier works in that regard it is certainly worth watching and again if, if you've got any regard for what 
the man has been able to produce up to this point, you'll get a lot of uh, enjoyment out of Achilles and the Tortoise. It probably works better than uh, Takeshi's in that regard. Um, it's certainly easier to follow. It uh, has has a proper story that you can uh, follow without it going kind of completely mental. It's a really interesting little trilogy, and I think certainly for yourself or anyone probably who's got this far in the podcast, it would be well worth watching uh, once you've seen Kateshi Kitano's other works. And there are a trio of very interesting films and make a, a quite interesting little uh, triple bill as I more or less watched them over the past uh, few days. Yes, really, really interesting. Of the lot, Glory to the Filmmaker is probably the most uh, most successful. It's, the, it's only the funniest. It's the most enjoyable film to watch. Probably Achilles and the Tortoise is the best of them. I think it, it works better on that regard. It does have a few. It, it does better at telling a story and having some emotional punch to it, which the other two are kind of throwaway films, either because they're too surrealistic to follow and really have a lot of depth to it, or they're too. Uh, just basically a comedy film that doesn't have quite the, the emotional punch to it whereas this one really does and I think it works on a, a better level as a conventional film really interesting little trilogy and uh, yeah certainly worth worth looking at and I suppose the next substantial thing that we probably want to talk about brings us um, quite close to being up to date and that would be 2010's Outrage which is firmly a return to Yakuza um, gangster territory although with one or two differences to some of his earlier work right the the plot, such as it is, is basically uh, a series of tit-for-tat um, tit exchanges between two gangs. Um, Takeshi here plays a lieutenant, I yes. think, in a, in a Yakuza crew. And the boss of bosses uh, is unhappy with Takeshi's boss, uh, Ikimoto, for having formed a, um, an alliance in prison uh, with another Yakuza gang, who he now fears are too involved in the drugs trade. So Iki, uh, Ikimoto uh, decides that actually what they should do is set up um, a series of circumstances which will allow him to conveniently distance himself um, from this drug dealing crew. And he, he perhaps unwisely sets ultraviolent <laughs> Takeshi on the case. <laughs> so yes, um, what follows us is a, a tit-for-tat exchange of violence between the clans. Uh, it soon escalates and spirals out of control, and we are very much firmly back in uh, familiar territory here. Yes, and let's just roll beyond outrage into this to follow up to it. Um, I think there's there's rumours of a third one being made, um, mm. which would kind of complete it. But there, beyond outrage essentially follows the same rough structure, if not quite the same narrative. But it's essentially a more complicated more narrative-driven Yakuza film than we've seen from Kitano in the past. And all the films we've talked about so far, they have lots of common Kitano traits. They've got very fairly minimal dialogue, lots of uh, nice old shoot, uh, long shots of not much happening. Outrage, for me, was a bit of a departure from this. Mm-hmm. I think this is somewhat closest to... It's the closest to a conventional film, as I've yep. seen from him. I would agree. Uh, part of why I kind of encourage you to watch this for this, this uh, podcast was that it was... It's the only Kitano film that I've kind of struggled a little bit to keep up with. I couldn't really tell who was betraying who for an awful lot of this. In the grand scheme of things, it works. I can kind of see where it's going for, but I, I think a lot of the characterization in it is a little bit messy. I couldn't really tell who was doing what to whom at some point. Can I can I make a, a, a shocking admission hmm. at this point? When I uh, when I watched Outrage last night, I actually fell asleep for fifteen minutes in the middle of it. Yeah. comfortably on my sofa. That's the first time I can say that. And and that's an odd thing to say, given that, as you say, this is the, the curious thing about this is someone who's, who's um, familiar with Takeshi's, um, uh, especially familiar with Takeshi's gangster movies, is that there, 
there is very little, if any, of that that lingering kind of uh, nuance around it. Yeah. Um, it all moves along at a fair old pace. And actually, yeah, I found I found myself curiously curiously bored by the lack of how boring it was in places. <laughs> it, it, is, it is very much more a conventional piece of work than I expected it to be. And I found it I found it less easy to identify this as a Takeshi film than some of his others. I wouldn't have been as surprised if you'd you know, if I hadn't known who directed the film in the first place and you'd you'd sold it to me as a as a movie that Takeshi Kitano starred in, I might not necessarily have been shocked if I found out it was directed by someone entirely different. Yeah, some of the more modern uh, filmmakers. Mm. I, I I wouldn't want to say it's a bad film. No, um, I, I mean, I, I, I enjoyed it on some level, but it, it didn't feel an awful lot like a Takeshi Kitano film. Yeah, and I'm somewhat baffled by the sort of generally positive critical reception it's had because I don't feel it's... Um, I don't feel it's anywhere on a, on a par with any of his earlier works. It seems narratively that he's shooting for something more. I mean, I, I get the impression that this is more influenced by something like The Godfather than it is by mm. anything uh, in sort of recent Japanese cinema history. It's it's got an element where it's really shooting more at the politics of the yakuza mm. uh, mechanisms of it, and it there, feels there's an element of that. Um, Once upon a time in the West thing as well as of of the passing of the West. A, a lot of time in this film seems to be spent yeah. lamenting the the passing of traditional um, Euro yakuza practice and, and code and ethics, and the fact that it's such an affront that this guy's dealing drugs that. Um, you know, what is the world coming to? We we can't trust the people we're working with anymore. No yes. one has any respect anymore. I would imagine it's probably easier to defend this film narratively than it is on any other level. Mm. I think it's got an involved plot. However, it was not a plot that I found particularly involving. Um, I, I struggled to connect with it. It's by no means a bad film, but it's just it just seemed like a, a bunch of yakuza's uh, bickering with each other mm. and eventually coming to a kind of bloody resolution. And it didn't really pack more of a punch for me on that level. It was it was an perfectly acceptable watch on an intellectual level, but it didn't really resonate with me or anything no. on any other level, which is something I found that even the weakest of uh, Kitano's previous works have been able to do. Um, they've been able to to kind of tap into something else, uh, something else that's a bit more unusual, a bit more or, uh, extraordinary, whereas this one just seemed extraordinarily ordinarily. It just seemed like a fairly conventional film, and that, that's no bad thing. Um, it's, it certainly did quite well, by all accounts, um, mm-hmm. but it, it didn't have any particular magic if you want to be so uh, pretentious about it. It seemed like a very conventionally made and uh, conventionally successful film. I think it, it would probably translate reasonably well. Uh, uh, maybe it would work better. It's the sort of film that might get the same kind of treatment that uh, Infernal Affairs did when it became mm. the... Uh, Departed. Departed. And it could it could be translated quite well in, in that regard. But I don't think it's really doing anything that is particularly Kitano-ish. Mm. And perhaps that's maybe just him wanting to challenge himself as a filmmaker by doing something that's perhaps a bit more uh, conventional. Um, yeah, sure. and that's absolutely legitimate. And it's it's not that um, you know there's there's not that necessarily directorial flair, but I mean it certainly it certainly pushes along at a, a you know a reasonable pace. Um, I think the thing that you know the, the stylistic choice, I absolutely you know trust that he's he's gone down that um, that path for a reason. And there, there's enough there in terms of the sort of flashes of random violence now and again to suggest that yeah you know Takeshi's under there somewhere. But I think what's harder to swallow uh, and that I missed most in this film what. I didn't. I didn't find the characterization of any of the central players, um, or any of the peripheral characters, for that matter, actually no. all that engaging for once. And I, and I include um, Takeshi's character in this, yes, um, because he puts himself not necessarily at the centre of the picture, but but close enough that I expected more weighting towards his his charisma. And yeah. there there are some moments that just don't ring true. I'm thinking particularly about towards the end of the film, and not to ruin anything in the ending, but 
the uh, Cato, the right hand man of the, the chairman uh, of the the uh, overall Yakuza group, um, it pulls an about turn um, towards the end of the film that just it just didn't ring true at all. It just didn't seem in keeping with this character, and it's not something. I'm not sure what the purpose of it was. I'm not sure to what end this about face was pulled because I didn't. I didn't feel I understood that character well enough to know why he would have done what he did. And there are some, yeah, just short, short thrift is paid to a couple of characters as well, where I expected them to have more impact overall. Really kind of curious, not, not a bad film. But for a film called Outrage, nothing particularly outrageous seems to happen in it. No, I mean, there's, <laughs> there's one or two moments, one involving a dentist drill and, and another involving a Stanley knife, which I suppose are slightly <laughs> outrageous. <laughs> in fact, two moments yes. involving a Stanley knife, which are quite outrageous. But um, yes, I think I, I seem to remember reading somewhere actually um, recently when I, before I watched the film, actually, that um, Takeshi approached this film um, completely different to his others. And essentially he sat around thinking up uh, modes of assassination um, and scenes, assassination scenes that he thought might be quite entertaining and then built a film around them. <laughs> so really, I suppose narratively, this is... Uh, you know, if that is true, then probably narrative wasn't as big as consideration there. Uh, and maybe this was an experiment in, uh, in building a film a different way, but it certainly wasn't as satisfying as I expected it to be. Um, and I, I know it's not necessarily something he doesn't need to bring that stillness and that sort of hypnotic um, tempo to the table every time he makes a film. He's perfectly within his rights to do something a different way. But yeah, I, I'm slightly disappointed and, and also slightly baffled by the, uh, as I say, the critical reception that it's had, because generally speaking, it was well received. Um, and I'm I'm not sure I would agree. So there was a review in particular from Jesse Cataldo, who I'm not familiar with, but for Slant magazine, um, which holds this film in great reverence. And I really felt was working very hard to try and convince me that it was something that it's not something something akin to a masterpiece. And I felt like that review made an awful lot of excuses on behalf of this film that I just don't buy. So yes, uh, I don't know if you feel as strongly about it as I do. The more I think about it, actually, the more disappointed I think I am. Yes, I mean, certainly it's not a film that I'm really recommending anyone go out of their way to see. And certainly in terms of critics, I'm not going to defend that opinion. Uh, people believe all sorts of strange things. I reading some other, in research in this uh, podcast, there was some other critic who was saying that when he, he started in 1995's Conan, and which was in, in bracketed with no particular explanation, saying, you know, the best Japanese film of 1995. I'm not saying that's not the case, but if it was the case, then it was a very bleak year, 1995, for mm. Japanese filmmaking, because Gorin was entirely disposable. Yeah. Again, one of the first films back after his accident, but this is still a really quite forgettable film. And I'm already forgetting bits of outrage after only a few days, and really everything we're saying here applies equally to the follow-up beyond outrage. There are films that perhaps... The only defence I can come up with them is maybe they work better. If you don't have any uh, assumed knowledge of Kitano's works, then you can sit down to Outrage and not really need to refer back to any of his previous works mm. or his previous style of filmmaking. It, it works on a very conventional level, but it's just not all that great a film. I think this time for Yakuza dramas has kind of passed. I feel uh, like the way I would sum this up is if for some reason my dad came up to me and said, "Who's this?" if he'd listened to this podcast and said, who's this Kitano bloke then? I would probably say sit and watch Outrage. If you're gonna if you're gonna watch a film, watch Outrage because it's the most contemporary. It's it's um it's very accessible. But if you're not if you're not heavily into cinema and you're not that invested in looking for something different, then do you know what? It's I almost want to say it's the Taken of of Kateshi's catalogue. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I can see that working. But at the same time, if you if you're really 
at all interested in what makes Takeshi Kitano Takeshi Kitano. This is really a bit of a disappointment because mm. it's completely conventional. You know, sometimes conventional is great and it's a, it's a perfectly acceptable film. However, if you want something that's actually different, if you want to, if if you, if you buy into the whole theory of autourism, which uh, mm. in this instance Takeshi Kitano certainly has been, then this is a disappointment because it really shows almost none of his previous influences. Or I, I desperately want to try and find a pass for this film, and I'm thinking now: is this the place that? Maybe if your maybe if your palate's not so developed or you're you're not sure about that sort of uh, that lingering thing, then maybe this is maybe this is a good introduction to Katano if you're just not sure whether or not you can stomach the violence. I'm not sure. I'm not sure um, because I mean, thinking about it, when we came to this, we were we were basically uh, noobs mm. to the whole point of um, you know, any film outside of basically Indiana Jones, Star Wars, sort of action adventure, more or less, oh, from oh. my point of view. And yet something like Violent Cop would come along in Flory and uh, completely change the way I thought about cinema. Whereas this will not change the way anyone thinks about cinema. No. This is utterly conventional. Not a bad thing. Certainly a great many conventional films that I enjoy, and to a large extent I enjoy Outrage. Oh. But in terms of it being something especially memorable, then this isn't the film. It's if, if you wanted to watch one of the most conventionally produced movies that Katano's done, this is this would be the way to go. But I'm not convinced it really would benefit you anything over watching, you know, something, you know, any other any other Yakuza film that's been made in all of cinema. So what then of Beyond Outrage or Outrage Beyond, depending upon which way which way you believe the title to be, the uh, is it of any more merit? Because it certainly seems as though it would be along a similar theme. I haven't I haven't caught up with it yet. Um, I intend to tomorrow if I can. But same uh, same essential criticism applies. It's uh, a sequel. Um, it would make no sense to watch Beyond Outrage if you haven't seen Outrage. So in that respect, it doesn't help us from 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 our uh, desperate attempts to kind of work this into a. So does Takeshi play the same character? He does. Yes. Right. Okay. Yes, you're you're throwing something of a curveball at the end of the film that is uh, undone mm. at the start of the second film, okay. uh, and uh, it continues on the same uh, same path. He's essentially released from prison by the uh, corrupt policeman uh, that you see, uh, with the intention of using him as a, a crutch to uh, start some more uh, yaku- inter yakuza family warfare, and basically him trying to get revenge along with uh, some returning characters from the first film. And it's it's no more or less successful than the first one. Um, if you did watch Outrage and enjoyed it, then you will certainly enjoy Beyond Outrage. And I hate doing reviews like this. But, mm-hmm. you know, if, if you like the last film, you will like this film because it's a continuation of the same film. But that's really the best way to think about Beyond Outrage. It's uh, something that makes would make no sense at all to watch if you hadn't seen Outrage. And if you did like Outrage, then you wanted some more essentially of the same. Uh, this is a good place to pick it up from. It doesn't really deviate from a lot of the kind of uh, structure or the narrative uh, techniques that it's using. Um, it's the same rough, essentially the same film again, more or less. It's not quite, not quite as I don't want to sound quite as dismissive as that, but it's not bringing anything different to the table. The outrage didn't, and uh, it basically falls into the same same category and uh, the same kind of guarded recommendations that I could have for it. So where do we want to see him go from here? Because that kind of brings us up to date, right? Uh, not quite. Uh, just this year, he produced uh, Rizzo and the Seven Henchmen, which uh, I would be, I would certainly more happily recommend to people. It's uh, based on a, a, an aging retired Yakuza, uh, Rizzo, played by Tatsuya Fuji, who's got a, a salaryman son who's who's kind of a, a very straight-laced family, and they they go off 
on summer holiday, I believe it is, and kind of leave him to his own devices, at which point he decides that he, he is a bit nostalgic for the past and calls some of his previous uh, gangster mates together and they form a new Yakuza family to kind of uh, combat this uh, new biker gang that's in the area or ex-biker gang that's kind of turned into more of an organised crime family but not quite a, a Yakuza family in the traditional sense. And it's got the same sort of yearning back to uh, the old days of the Yakuza and uh, proper you know, old school systems of order and chopping off your fingers and all that kind of stuff but it's played in a much more light-hearted vein it's quite refreshing to see a film where you've got um, elderly people uh, playing mm. the roles but it's it is a comedy but it's not a comedy because you've got old guys running around being yakuza it's a comedy because they, they kind of get into these outrageous scrapes because of their uh, their puffery and uh, uh, some some delusions they've got about their their current competency and uh, at the same time they're doing a really great job of picking flaws in some of the, the younger people that are running around them and it's it's got a lot of nice uh, comic touches and it's uh, it's one of those more successful films recently I think it's uh, a very easy kind of entertaining watch and uh, it's maybe not saying anything narratively that's uh, particularly worthy or new but it's, uh, it's certainly a really great enjoyable film to watch and I think it works quite well in that regard. I think you touched on something there actually that's made me just wonder if that's one of the reasons that I might not have enjoyed Outrage as much is that perhaps I was expecting Takeshi to do something a little bit more um, with the fact that he obviously is now, um, you know, that bit older um, and, you know, very much a, a dinosaur in comparison to some of the guys that he's playing against. And perhaps I wanted yeah. him to make some sort of statement about that that I didn't I didn't receive. Yeah. And I think if he's going to continue to go down the, the sort of gangster movie route, I'd, I'd like to see him tackle that in some way. Yeah, as he's uh, in his late 60s now, I believe that would be. Um, he's... He's probably touching on that most in uh, Achilles and the Tortoise. Mm. So uh, I'd probably recommend you go back and take a look at that and see if that scratches that itch. Um, Nothing, of course, to do with Yakuza movies in particular, but in terms of how he's kind of getting on as a filmmaker, I think that might uh, give you some kind of more insight into what he's kind of thinking in that way. But no, you're absolutely right in terms of uh, him being a a filmmaker who's still apparently quite interested in making Yakuza films. Mm -hmm. uh, It would be... This is a more interesting statement than anything that happened in Outrage or Beyond Outrage. It's got a lot of touches that are quite comedic, but at the same time, it's uh, it's, it's still quite actually quite emotionally uh, rewarding to watch that it's really treated for anything other than being a, a kind of knockabout comedy. But it, it kind of works better in that regard than anything to do with anything to do with Outrage. It still works as a, a kind of better lens onto kind of people aging and getting on in a an ageing society and surrounded by young people who, who are not giving them perhaps the respect they deserve than anything that happened in Outrage, which again is a film that's still largely based about honour systems than how they're going away, but it doesn't really do a great deal with that. Whereas I think it's kind of more accurately dealt with in a light-hearted comedy about Yakuza's than, than it is in the actual series drama. So, yes, for my money, it's probably the most sort of individually successful film that he's done in about the past decade. Um, it's it's not the most well-regarded, mm. I assume, simply because it is just, at the end of the day, a knockabout comedy. But it's a really well-done knockabout comedy, and that's what I appreciate about it. It's between that and a, a really great sort of central performance from Tatsuya Fuji. It, it really does have a lot more charisma and a lot more going on for it than anything that happened in Outrage or Beyond Outrage. Mm. It's a lot easier to engage with than pretty much anything he's done 
back since uh, Zatoichi. So in that instance, I think it's I think it's actually been quite uh, underplayed. I think it's been uh, given a bit of a, a short shrift, and I would uh, actually recommend it more than an awful lot of his other recent works. So yeah, I, w- I certainly would recommend that if you can give that a go. I don't think it's actually been officially released at any point in the West, but you can get a hold of a English subtitled the Blu-ray if you're so desired, or there's other ways on the internet you can get it. But um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's certainly no idea. We wouldn't condone that kind of behaviour. There's a number of uh, Tano films that are quite difficult to track down. Mm. Of them all, this is the one I would recommend you actually spend some effort into trying to get. It's, for my money, the most successful of them. It's, I would perhaps argue, the easiest one to get into. Again, it's not really too heavily reliant on any of Catano's previous tropes of, you know, long silences or anything like that. It's a bit more conventional in that regard, but I think it works better as a kind of more conventional comedy than Outrage works as a conventional drama. So for that regard, probably probably good entry level for, for many people. Still, I'd probably recommend Zatoichi is your best uh, entry level for most of the stuff. But oh. yeah, if you're more into the light-hearted stuff and can still take actually jokes about people chopping their own fingers off because, well, it's a user film, you've got to expect that, um, then it's uh, one to certainly put in the list. Cool. And I still, I like to think that although obviously he's approaching his 70s now, he doesn't strike me as the kind of guy who has plans to give up soon. And I, I still like to think he has no. he has another couple of great movies in him if he if he chooses to, uh, if he chooses the right project. Yeah, well, I mean, this is a guy who essentially hasn't stopped. I mean, as I mentioned at the start, he's never stopped making television stuff. So he's been mm. continually working um, every year since, well, certainly in television since what that be the late 70s or something. So oh. he shows no sign of stopping and he, he, certainly, he, he certainly has a far greater work ethic than I do. So let's, <laughs> as I struggle to spend another couple of days editing this podcast together. Um, but no, no, he's, he's, he's clearly got a tremendous drive to uh, get his stories out there and, you know, fair play to him for that. It's uh, certainly something I, I always look forward to seeing another Tageshi Kitano film being made. Absolutely cannot cannot say enough positive things about the man. And uh, as I say, he's had the, the single greatest influence on me for uh, any of the, the filmmakers that are currently knocking around at the minute. So yeah. I'd agree. I would agree. He's, he's he's the filmmaker who opened up my critical faculties at the uh, the most impressionable time of my uh, my movie viewing career. And and for that, I I thank him wholeheartedly. And Scott, I mean, we know he listens to the podcast religiously. So <laughs> Takeshi, thanks for the memories, man. I hope there are many more to come. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you laughing? Good times, Why are you laughing? Great memories. <laughs> Takeshi, you still owe me uh, ten quid. If you're yeah. listening, if you could just stick it in an envelope or something, that's fine, mate. Don't worry about it. Just, I, 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 I do need that ten quid. I do need it. <laughs> so, I guess then, yes. As much as we revere Takeshi, he might not want to listen to the next podcast because we, I did, did, we, did we poke a bit of fun at him in the uh, Johnny Mnemonic commentary. I don't think we do actually. But not really. I mean, given the other sources of fun to poke, Catano um, is not the one you'd be you'd be no. immediately aiming at, as well, opposed to you know Techno Jesus or. Well, that's our tangential podcast to this one. Will be uh, our Johnny Mnemonic commentary, and you can probably pick that up on the tenth of December, I believe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, unless there's anything else, Scott, I think we should probably wrap up and say thank you for listening. I was Craig and Scott. Scott. Goodbye. And you shall hear from us again in about ten days. Bye bye.